Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Novak Djokovic is the 2023 Roland Garros champion and the new record holder for most major titles in men's singles. Number 23 comes at Roland Garros, a straight set win over Kasper Ruud in the final. It is the Monday after a major final. My four, one of my four favorite shows of the year. So excited, so pumped to talk about this, dissect it from every angle. I'm gonna do something really fun at the end that I'll tease in a moment. Uh, but first, let's just address the the historical consequence of the match straight away. Uh, we'll probably be remembered more so for that, you know, 5, 10, 20, 50 years down the road than the actual tennis that was played. Uh, Djokovic takes the lead in the slam race at a time when Nadal's future is uncertain and Roger Federer is retired. And I've said this a lot, and it's really, it's not anything profound, but once you reach a certain level in this sport, the main goals are to win majors and to be number one in the world. You hit a certain level, and those are the two pillars. That's what you want to be doing. And Novak has now done those two things more than anybody else. You got the year-end number ones. You got the weeks at number one. You have the major titles. Another thing is now Djokovic is the only man to have won all four slams three times or more. So there's a, a surface versatility accolade right there, certainly. I was thinking, you know, are there, what's the next record? Like, what what else is there for Djokovic to really do? And the only one that I can think of that's really central is titles, most total titles. And uh, that right now belongs to uh, Jimmy Connors, who has 109. Novak now has 94. So I think that's the next chase. Not that that's something that I think has been on the forefront of Novak Djokovic's mind, but just there's no longer a lot of records that you kind of look at and and Novak doesn't have that aren't specific to you know high, highly specific to certain conditions right so that's kind of obviously the weight of this and it comes at Roland Garros and uh, I I said in the preview obviously it, it it has been over the last three, four, maybe even five years, there have been so many twists and turns in this in this slam race. And one of them came in 2021 
uh, sorry, in 2022, when Nadal broke the 2020-20 tie with an Australian Open title. And now Djokovic does it at Roland Garros. Of course, Melbourne is Djokovic's house. Paris is Rafa's house. So you have uh, certainly an interesting turnaround Somewhat of a revenge story there, although I'm not sure the players look at it that way as much as the fans do. Before I jump into the match analysis, I want to tease a little bit of what's coming. The theme is that I think we saw the old Novak, we saw Grinder Novak at times in this match, and we saw kind of the new new Novak. We saw big serve, big forehand Novak at other times in the match. And for different reasons in different spots, he needed to rely on both. The fact that he can still execute from a skill set standpoint, either style, is why he is still a winning machine at 36 years old. At the very end, I'm going to present an argument that of all of the titans of longevity that we've seen in the modern era... I don't even know. Modern might be too broad a phase. The most recent era, like I'm talking the 2000s, where we have had these unbelievable titans of, of sport in general, but uh, most of them have been playing for a long time. You look at LeBron, you look at Brady, and then in tennis, you look at not just Nadal and Federer, but you also look at Serena. Well, I'm going to talk about all of those guys, and I'm going to compare it to Novak, and I'm not saying that unequivocally Novak is more impressive but I do think there's an argument there, and I'll present it, and we'll see what you think. We'll also do some film study and take a look at some of the patterns that worked well for Djokovic and uh, just address, I think, some of the things that Kasparud could improve in order to have a better chance in this kind of match next time. Uh, let's start with the first set. Talked about the mental stuff coming in, that it was going to be a lot harder for Djokovic to come out as relaxed as he did against Alcaraz because... He, he was probably able to convince himself against Carlitos that nobody was giving him enough respect and that he was, you know, being treated like an underdog and that he was going to sh show everybody. But in this case, you come in as a heavy favorite. It feels a little bit different. Plus, it's a final. Djokovic has been a little bit more nervous in finals historically, especially in recent, recent history, but really throughout his career. He's been much more nervous in finals than he has been in semifinals. So I had a feeling that it wasn't going to be quite as smooth right away for Djokovic in the nerve department, and he was playing with some tension. There was some tightness, and there was also some early fatigue. It might have taken him a little bit longer to get the legs going as well. And it was Rude who came out relaxed, no sign of nerves, and really asserting his weapons, particularly his forehand. Not only is Rude's forehand firing, but Novak's having some trouble defending, a little bit of trouble moving. Again, just looking physically a little bit strained at the very start of the match. So Casper ends up winning long rallies. He keeps winning rallies. Over five shots, he has a huge advantage. Over nine shots, he has a 14-7 to seven advantage heading into the tiebreak. Now, Djokovic was still returning well. He started to defend better midway through the set. He recovered a break of serve at 4-2, forces it to a tiebreak. So now we go into the sixth tiebreak of Djokovic's Roland Garros campaign. He comes in 5-0, 13 winners, no unforced errors. Anything going to change? 
He going to make any unforced errors? Is he going to make any errors, period? No, he's not. Not a single error. But the key was the first three points of the tiebreak. Starts with a 16-shot rally. Rude hits this big forehand cross court out of the corner. He's trying to build something offensively with his forehand cross court. And Djokovic, on the run, just throttles it down the line for a winner. Rude hit his forehand so hard cross court that he wasn't able to recover. And, you know, with Novak saw the open court. And even though he was on the run, he was able to exploit that open court. Forehand winner, 16-shot rally. A lot of running for Novak. So... First point of the tiebreak, it was long. It was physical. How are we going to respond here on both sides? Well, the next point is a 15-shot rally. Novak actually maybe tried to point shorten here because he served and volleyed, but Rude actually hit a lob on the return and completely neutralized the serve and volley effort. Novak had to retreat way behind the baseline and kind of start from neutral. And Casper, later on in the point, finds this really nice offensive sequence. Big backhand down the line. Has Novak off the court. Forehand drop shot. Djokovic, long run. We're deep into another lengthy rally. But Novak digs it out with his with his legs. Gets to the drop shot. Casper has a look at a, a passing shot on the backhand. And he tries to go behind Novak. But as he often does, Djokovic read it like a book. He left the line open. He stayed put where he hit the original shot from, and he stayed in the cross court, and it ended up being a really easy put-away volley because Rude thought he was being smart to go behind Novak, but Novak wasn't even recovering or covering the line, so he ended up hitting it right at Novak. Okay, we've played a 16-shot rally. We've played a 15-shot rally. Third point of the tiebreak. It's a 14-shot rally. Rude hits this sweet... It's the 12th shot. 12th shot of this rally. Rude hits a sweet forehand inside in. On the 12th shot. Novak is on the dead run here. You think, surely, we have a finish. We have a successful finish. Hitting a, a great forehand right inside the sideline. With Djokovic... Kind of out of position and needing to really track to his right. Well, he gets there. He throws up a defensive lob and it's perfect. It's super high. It's deep enough to keep Casper behind the baseline. And Rude misses the forehand inside out wide. He had no pace to work with. He was in the middle of the court. Novak was recovered because he had all day because the lob went 100 feet in the air. And at this point, both players are exhausted. Rude misses that inside out forehand. It is three love. At its core, what happened there? Fitness from Novak, defensive skills from Novak, shot making on the first point with the forehand down the line, anticipation on the second point, staying put after digging out the drop shot. Sure, all those things, fine. But none of those things happen without willingness to suffer. And you could hear in Novak's grunting how much pain he was in. You could see his shoulders and his chest 
moving up and down, contracting in and out because of how strained his cardio was. But still, he was willing to run and run and run and make every single ball, no matter how much running it was going to require, Djokovic was there and ready to do it. Not because he wasn't tired. Not because he wasn't tired. Because he pushed through it. How much do we talk about this, like, when it comes to players fatiguing and making shot selection errors and looking for quick finishes, looking for lazy finishes, pulling the trigger prematurely, and oftentimes you give those players a pass. And Novak certainly would have gotten a pass after a 16-shot rally and a 15-shot rally. Surely on shot shots 8 through 13 of the third rally, if Novak did something that would have kind of spelled out fatigued or tried to bail out at any point, you would have understood it, but he didn't do it. He didn't do it because he understands the importance of that moment and he knows how to suffer. So here you are, 14-shot rally, 15-shot rally, 16-shot rally, having to desperately cover the court in all three and you win all three points. That, my friends, is how to take a soul. That's how to take a soul from across the net. And from that point on, you're going to get a diminished version of Casper Ruud. Not surprisingly, Casper uh, had... Look, he, he wasn't awful from that point on, but there was an unwise approach shot off of a tame forehand where he got passed. He missed a, a regulation backhand going cross-court, which he missed wide, an unforced error. And Djokovic wins this tiebreak, 7-1. The only point Rude won on was, uh, was a serve plus one winner, which means Novak made every single ball that touched his racket, and he finishes Roland Garros a perfect 6-0 in tiebreaks. The 9-plus shot stat that I mentioned that was 14-7 coming into the breaker Novak goes 3-0 and on the first three points in that category. In the first set, we got a tense Novak Djokovic, a tight Novak. But we talk about what goes away when Novak is tight. His ability to be offensive on the forehand to the max of that shot's potential, to hit it with big pace, to hit it to great targets, to time the ball perfectly, to be offensive with his backhand off the ground. But what doesn't go are the legs, the defense, the ability to have great shot tolerance and make things difficult on his opponents in pressure situations. So that's what he leaned on. All right, ladder sets. A, a little bit of deflation for Rude. Didn't we see this in the Marton Fucevic match after the first set went about an hour and a half and Fucevic played as the amazing tennis and didn't win it because he lost a tiebreak? Didn't we see this in the Davidovic Fokina match where Fokina played two great sets of tennis for well over two hours, but he didn't win either of them because he lost two tiebreaks? Yeah, we did. And it happened again. Because when you bring your best tennis and you pour your heart and soul and a lot of your physical energy into a set and you don't win it, there's a hangover. There's a deflation. 
So you had a deflation for Rude and all that tension for Novak that really just wasn't allowing him to be as dangerous as he needs to be on his forehand. In the second set, Djokovic is able to just loosen up. He's got a set under his belt. It's a weight off of his shoulders. We see deflation for Rude and we see calmness set in for, for Novak and confidence. So suddenly his weapons start firing, particularly his forehand. And this is where we see the baseline patterns where, remember, Rude was winning the longer rallies in the first set. We see Djokovic execute winning patterns from the baseline because he, he gets his weapon back. So let's go to some film study here. All right. Uh, the first thing that I want to point out is Djokovic's forehand down the line, rushing Rude into slice defense, into backhand slice defense. And I'll talk about some technical stuff with Rude here, which I think is very, very important. Can't be understated how important this is for Rude to, to start to remedy this if he wants to win these kinds of matches. So here we're going to see a serve plus one for Djokovic in the second set. All right, first serve, T. Rude backhand, kind of inside out. Novak's going to open up with this plus one forehand. He's going to take it down the line. And he's really going to focus uh, on pace with this forehand. He's going to flatten it out. He's going to hit it really hard to a big target directed at Rude's backhand. It's not close to the line. Look where this lands. Literally eight feet inside the baseline, six feet inside the sideline, right? But Rude because the ball's coming quick, is going to slice. And in all honesty, he just he just doesn't move that well to this ball. He just reaches for the backhand slice. It's the first point of the game at 4-2. Djokovic is up a break. Casper needs to try to you know, get into a return game here. But Rude goes to the slice, and it's short in the court. And Djokovic just moves athletically up to the ball, finds himself a forehand. This is great footwork. And Djokovic pulls it inside in for the easy forehand winner. Rude is guessing the wrong direction. But even if he guessed correctly, it's such a good forehand by Novak, it probably wouldn't have mattered. Show you another example. This is off of a Rude cross-court forehand. And again now, Djokovic, this is at 30-all in the same game. And even though this isn't a huge spot in the match, I like to take big moments of the match, uh, I did want to show you Two points from the same game uh, because I'm I'm laying out that, you know, potentially if Rude does this differently, then maybe he earns a break point at the very least and he's able to dig into this return game uh, because Djokovic makes some mistakes in this game. Now it's 30 all. All right, we're going to change direction with the forehand down the line. This one is a little bit closer to the sideline. And once again, Rude goes to the slice defense. But this one, he slices into the net. And this just wasn't, it shouldn't have been a finishing ball for Novak. It it was not, it was not big enough for it to end the point. You, you have to, you have to defend your backhand better than that. I show you these two examples, but man, they were littered throughout the match of examples where Rude is... Very willing to start to hit backhand slice from defensive positions where he's way behind the baseline. 
He's almost never going to get it to Djokovic's backhand because he's too far behind the baseline and a slice travels slowly. All, all the time in the world for Djokovic to run around and hit another forehand. It's not a shot that is generally produced with a lot of depth. It's not a shot that can rush Djokovic in, in any sense. And he's just got all day to load up the forehand. It's not a good way to get the point back to neutral, especially on clay, where you're not really going to benefit from a low bounce necessarily, right? If you keep the ball low, it's a good way to avoid potency, right? On clay, meh. It's just not good enough. What would Novak do on these balls? What is the shot that Novak and many others, okay? Nadal, Medvedev, Zverev, Murray. What do these guys do? They hit an open stance backhand. They drive the ball. And they get more on it. They get more pace. They get more depth. Oftentimes, they get more width. Cross court, they get more width on that. It's just a better way to defend. Slice is for desperation. Slice is for desperation. And you have to slice sometimes. And you should slice sometimes. And... There's such thing as really great and awesome slice defense. But for Rude, usually it's a floater in the middle of the court. And we one of the buzzwords in modern tennis is how do you turn defense to offense? How do you neutralize at least? Turn defense into neutral. Rude's backhand does not turn defense into offense. It does not neutralize. What it does is it turns defense into more defense. That's all it does. And again, when I say slices for emergencies, usually a slice is necessary because you're not able to get your body close enough to the ball in order to hit a drive backhand. The distance between the ball and your body is too much. You're on the stretch. You have to reach for the ball. And because you can't make up that ground, the slice is the only way to, to maximize your reach. So you're slicing because your opponent has attacked you with a certain level of width. But that's not what I see with Rude. I see Casper going to the backhand slice because he's rushed. Especially that first example. That was a good example. Where all Novak does was he hit the ball really hard. And that's why Rude had to slice. He wasn't really challenged for width on that ball. And I guess he was a little slow moving to his left and it made it look like he was challenged with width. But at the end of the day, that ball just came so hard that Rude sliced the ball. And that's the tendency you'll see that whenever Djokovic hit a good crisp forehand down the line, boom, he got the slice. And Rude needs to be more stubborn. He needs to make it harder for Novak to earn the defensive slice because the defensive slice is what Novak wants. He needs to try to hit more open stance, topspin backhands, period. He's at a disadvantage unless he gets better with that. Especially for a player who has the athleticism and the quickness to be really, really good defensively. And I think he defends his forehand well. But I, I would challenge anyone who tells me that Kasparud defends defenses backhand well because I don't think he does. I think all he does is float slice backhands into the middle of the court. And that's not great defense.
Okay, I think I belabored that point. Let's go to the next pattern. The next pattern is uh, Novak attacking Rude's topspin backhand cross court with his forehand, particularly his forehand inside in because Rude is not really going to recover to the middle on this ball. All right. So Djokovic backhand cross court, Rude backhand cross court. Now Novak doesn't need to recover here either unless he feels threatened by the backhand down the line of Rude, which he should not. Especially after the first set, Rude just wasn't quite as confident hitting his backhand down the line. So Djokovic isn't going to recover here. He's kind of camped on the ad side. If Rude hits a backhand cross court, which, spoiler alert, he's going to, it better be good. Better be good. Otherwise, Novak is perfectly positioned to hit, hit a forehand, essentially, because he's uh, not recovered in the middle. All right, so he goes cross court. Not good enough. Djokovic gets around it. It's it's high. It's spinny. And if Novak hit this as a backhand, it would have been unattackable. I don't think Novak, with the, with the amount of topspin and the amount of height, I don't think Novak would have been able to really do anything at shoulder level, well behind the baseline, and Casper would have been safe. But for Djokovic, he knows better. And he understands that. He knows that when Rude hits that high, spinny backhand cross court, the way he can do damage is by making a forehand. So he's going to get around the ball and he is going to rope it inside in. Absolutely crushed. Clean winner. Bang. We saw that pattern a good amount. Again, the only way out of that for Rude is you got to hit your backhand down the line. But credit for Novak to uh, for being proactive with his footwork to recognize this is my clay weapon right here. And I need to find it and I need to use it. Just like Djokovic left off at the Australian Open. I want to harken back to a storyline. All throughout the Australian Open, when, remember, Djokovic was playing with some limited mobility because of the hamstring thing. We discussed the improved forehand potency. That was a big key for him at that time. And I was curious to see if that was going to continue throughout the year. And to be honest, it did not. But it seemed like it kind of came back. And obviously the elbow stuff might have made all of this even worse than maybe it would have been anyway. But I think by now, yeah, it did come back. Because Novak's forehand was awesome against Alcaraz. And it was awesome in this match. The forehand potency in the second and the third set here was terrific. He really raced to the finish line. He won 12 out of the last 13 points in this match, in the third set. Rude in the third set, by far his best serving set. And there was a lot of good serve plus one aggression from Casper here. Again, it was, it was in that category, the best Rude played all match long. So, pretty serve-dominated third set. We hit 4-5, though. And Novak has an easy hold. And then he breaks at love. He nearly wins the last 12 points of the match. But he loses his first match point. Ultimately, he wins 12 out of 13 points. Mostly on his terms. That's the impressive part about it. 
four forehand finishes, three forehand winners, but four forehand finishes, three unreturned serves, two backhand winners. That gets us to nine points. Nine points on a run of 12 of 13 to close the match. He finished with a flourish. And we got back to that point where it's like, okay, I'm watching Djokovic root again. Whose forehand is better right now? That's the problem zone. That's when you know Rude has no chance. When the strength for Casper might not be better than that very shot for Novak. There were, uh, I said there were three forehand, four forehand finishes, three forehand winners. Two of those forehand winners were Rude forehand cross court, trade slash build into Djokovic forehand cross court winner. So like strength to strength, baseline to baseline, cross court to cross court, Djokovic hitting forehand winners cross court off of Rude's forehand cross court. That's a statement. That's a statement right there. Both of them were like pretty, pretty emphatic. So again, Novak in this match, tight in the first set. Does some really amazing grinding. and Shows some incredible physicality. Loosens up in the second and the third set. And shows some dominant weaponry. First serve dominance. Forehand dominance. Backhand technical proficiency. We saw the full range of what Novak has always had. Or at least what he's had since his prime. And what he's developed. Great stat here from NBC. And I was going to talk about stats of this nature uh, regardless. But I did hear it on the NBC broadcast. And it is phenomenal. Major finals. Since Novak Djokovic turned 30. He is 11-2 in major finals. I think he's won 15 out of his last 18 since 2015. But... That's just kind of a another one. Throw that to the side. Remember, eleven and two in his thirties. He was twelve and nine in his twenties. It's a point in time where Djokovic was, I think, just under five hundred in major finals. Uh, I think he went like, I think he won like six of his first thirteen finals. I think that sounds right. So he wasn't always, which is by the way, not bad. That ain't bad. It's just. You know, not, it's bad compared to what he's been doing recently. That's for sure. If you put it next to each other. And look, I'm not saying 2013 Djokovic would have lost to Rude here. But I am saying that he might have had a harder time with his nerves. He wouldn't have applied as much offensive pressure. And Casper might have played better himself as a result. But really, I don't want to focus in on this match when it comes to Djokovic's longevity. I want to take a look at the big picture. And I want to... Keep that in mind, that he's he's almost won as many majors now in his 30s that he, he's almost matched the number that he's won in his 20s, and he didn't win any in his teens. And of course, he somewhat recently turned 36, and there's no signs of slowing down. So at the moment, it looks like his 30s will legitimately be more fruitful than his 20s. All right? Let's make the argument here 
that Novak Djokovic is the greatest master of athletic longevity in modern sports. There's going to be some contenders here. I am excluding Messi and Ronaldo because I simply don't know enough. I, I, Everyone I'm about to talk about, I have followed their careers. So I feel like I have a good sense and I have a pretty good institutional knowledge of what they've accomplished and how they've accomplished it. Messi and Ronaldo, blind spot for me. So let me know in the comments what you think about those two in comparison to Novak. But I want to discuss Novak in comparison with Serena, Roger, Rafa, and then two in other sports, LeBron and Tom Brady, who is in Novak's box. So the first thing to look at is did they maintain prime level production? And I'm going to use the same 20s, 30s split. Like very simple. We got to keep it even. We got to keep it consistent. Let's look at what these guys did in their 20s and then what they did in their 30s and compare it. Serena first. Serena won 13 majors before 30 and she won 10 after. But if you look at major finals, actually pretty close. 17, pre-30, 16 post. So I think it's fair to say that's close enough where we can give Serena a checkmark that she pretty much maintained prime level production. Roger, 16 majors before he was 30, four majors after he was 30. That's not close. Obviously, that's not close. Rafa, he won 14 And then he won eight after he was 30. Not very close. You know, still we're looking at, we're looking at a little bit over half of his overall major titles. And yeah, am I simplifying it? Yeah, because it needs to be simplified because we're talking about entire careers here and there are a million metrics. Got to keep it simple. All right. So Rafa and Roger... Did they age incredibly well into their 30s? Heck yeah, they did. Remarkably well. And look, all of these players did. All of these athletes did. That's why I'm including them in this conversation. So I'm, I, I really need to emphasize, I'm not diminishing any of them and how, and how they all aged because they were all unbelievable. Brady. Brady won league MVP at 40 years old. He won a Super Bowl at 43. Both of those are records. In his 30s, he won two NFL MVPs. He won two Super Bowl MVPs. And he made nine Pro Bowls. There's an argument to be made, like Novak, that Brady was better in his 30s and his 40s, that he accomplished more in his 30s and his 40s than he did in his 20s. A good argument. And statistically, there was zero decline whatsoever. So Brady with the check mark, Serena with the check mark. How about LeBron? LeBron is interesting. You know, all four of his league MVPs were before he turned 30, but he's won two championships in his 30s as the best player on his team, won finals MVP on both occasions. And his stats really haven't declined much overall, especially the important ones. Points haven't really declined. I didn't really take a close look at rebounds. Assists, in some cases, have actually gone up. So... His stats are still there. I'm not going to hold the MVPs against him. That's one singular metric. I mean, ultimately, I think we can give LeBron a check mark that he kind of maintained his prime level production 
into his 30s. Obviously still going. Next portion of this is do they rely heavily on physicality and did they have to reinvent themselves or could they just kind of do the same thing? And I want to also be clear, like I'm not really talking about effectiveness in your sport. That's a separate category. I'm actually talking about it from like a strictly physical standpoint. Like who is the most, who is the best marvel of fending off father time and father time's effects, negative effects on athleticism specifically, physicality specifically, all right? So Serena, greatest serve in the history of women's tennis, by far the most powerful player on tour. So I think there's something there with Serena, a little bit like Federer. She was kind of able to avoid a certain level of physicality with her play style. So I think that combined with the fact that she wasn't quite as good in her 30s as she was in her 20s. And because it's kind of an apples to apples comparison with a tennis to tennis, you know, straight on tennis to tennis comparison. I think it's safe to say that it's close between Djokovic and Serena, but you got to give the, the the nod to Novak here. All right, Brady. Tom Brady. Never a mobile quarterback. Never relied on his legs, his speed, his quickness, escaping the pocket, running. No, never. Not once. But even as his career went on, you saw him just mastering the art of standing in the pocket and getting rid of the ball quickly. The analytics, the advanced metrics would show you. He got rid of the ball by far faster than anyone in the league. He was a master at avoiding hits. His weapons were his arm and his mind. So I also put Brady in that category of, it's not that the effects of age were not present in Tom Brady. It's that he was able to master a play style that just didn't require him to be all that athletic. Uh, now, I guess the strength of his right arm, like his throwing strength, that miraculously stayed at an extraordinarily high level. And that's nothing to sneeze at. Remember, I'm making the argument for Novak here. There are, there are you know, arguments for, for these other guys. Uh... But I would say, like, athletically, what impresses me more, Tom Brady, who would, you know, take the snap and get rid of the ball right away, did have to get tackled sometimes and withstand that, which is impressive, right? He did have to get hit sometimes. But ultimately, there is nobody in the NFL who got hit less than Brady. There is nobody in the, there is no quarterback in the NFL who moved less than Brady. Compare that to Djokovic. Compare that to how physical he can play right now. How much he can rely on his movement, his agility, his speed, his endurance. There's no comparison there. So I think if you look at accomplishments and dominance of the sport, Brady and Novak, honestly, it, it still might be advantage Brady, or at least it's even, or at least maybe we haven't figured it out yet because Novak is 36. And when Brady was 36, there was still an MVP ahead of him and a Super Bowl ahead of him. So maybe we're still waiting. But that kind of is the thing with Brady is that I just don't physically, I don't think it's as impressive what he was doing. In the sport, yeah. But athletically, no. All right, LeBron. 
the big thing with LeBron is he's not as healthy as he was. LeBron in his first 15 years in the league played over 60 games. 15 years, over 60 games, every single time. In the last five seasons, he's been under 60 games in four of them. Four out of the last five seasons, he hasn't been able to play as many games as he played in each of his first 15 seasons. Look, this is this is natural. Part of this is the philosophy of the league where like you're trying to rest these guys. But that's big. Like that's a major advantage, first of all, for team sports, where like the Lakers can go play a game. They don't need LeBron. Uh Djokovic can't play a match without Djokovic. No, can't really do that. Uh he can play less tournaments. He can play a lighter schedule. Uh he he in a way has, but he's has not been injured. And when it comes to like a major, for example, there are no shortcuts here. It's been the same the whole time. You got to play seven best of five set matches. Another thing with LeBron, three point attempts are up. Eye test wise, he's not the same guy. He's adapted really well, but his athleticism isn't the same at all. He doesn't have the same burst, the same quickness. He doesn't jump uh, like, like he used to. He doesn't defend as hard as he used to, not nearly as hard as he used to. So LeBron has been unbelievable, still one of the best players in the league. But 20s LeBron and 30s LeBron, I'm sorry. It doesn't look anything like each other. Again, 20s Novak, 30s Novak. You have to squint to see differences. I've covered those differences. They exist. Novak does not want to be grinding from first ball to last anymore. He does, he's not willing to do that. He doesn't want to do that. Maybe he can't do that. But he can turn it on. We saw it in this match. Three points in a row. 16 shots, 15 shots, 14 shots. Running, defense, court coverage. Yeah, he still has that. So I would argue that Novak is the only guy who won has not declined in his 30s. And two, relies heavily on his physicality. We've seen great players adapt. We've seen great players maintain a high percentage of what they had. But have we seen an athlete preserve their ability to the extent that Novak has athletically, physically? I don't think we have. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.